Welcome to The Wildlife, a program that probes the mysteries of the animal world through interviews with scientists and other wildlife investigators. I'm Laurel Neme, your host for The Wildlife and also author of Animal Investigators, How the World's First Wildlife Forensic Lab is Solving Crimes and Saving Endangered Species. Today on The Wildlife, you'll hear a presentation on carbofuron and future considerations for wildlife forensics and conservation efforts that was made at the Society of Wildlife Forensic Sciences' first triennial meeting in May 2012. Carbofuron was developed in the 1960s to replace more persistent pesticides, such as DDT. Since then, it has repeatedly been implicated in the mass mortality of non-target wildlife, especially avian species. Conservationists worldwide have sought to regulate or ban the use of carbofuron for decades. However, this controversial product remains registered for use in a number of developed and developing nations. Its use in the United States has fueled an ongoing regulatory battle between the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and various lobby groups. Several significant obstacles, including flawed field study designs, lack of analytical capacity, and a dearth of forensic evidence to support anecdotal reports, have all contributed to this pesticide's remarkable staying power. This presentation talks about the impacts of this pesticide and also how wildlife forensic practitioners, conservationists, and analysts can work together to address future poisoning incidents. Nagao Richards is a canine field specialist with Working Dogs for Conservation. She is a forensic ecologist and conservationist and has authored numerous papers on wildlife monitoring and conservation, including the recently edited Carbofuran and Wildlife Poisoning, Global Perspectives and Forensic Approaches. Now here is Ms. Richards' presentation on Carbofuran. I apologize in advance for the poor quality of the recording. Thanks for hanging in. Um, so I'm going to talk about a subject that's very, very near and dear to my heart. The first thing I want to say very clearly is I'm not an expert on carbofuran. I'm more of a uh, gatherer of information or facilitator of information. Um, about three quarters of the way into my PhD, I started hearing from a lot of colleagues in the field who were expressing a lot of uh, anguish in the field, having real problems with this compound. And I thought to myself, well, at this point, I've got a huge amount of time on my hands, so I might as well just compile all this information and uh, see if we can disseminate it. So um, kudos to my contributors who endured a lot of nitpicky questions over the last two years. They are they're amazing. Now, very quickly, because we don't have a huge amount of time and there's so much I want to tell you. Uh, it's a carbamate insecticide. It was uh, brought onto the market, developed by uh, FMC Corporation in Pennsylvania, bless them, in the 1960s. And uh, they held sole patent until about 1980. I tried to find out exactly when that patent expired, but uh, it's not really available information. And what I want to say about that now is just that uh, we still consider FMC to be the primary manufacturer, but globally uh, there are other manufacturers as well. And um, there are a number of different formulations, but the one that wildlife managers and conservationists tend to be most familiar with is this granular form that's kind of bluey, bluey gray. And before I go any further, how many of you know carbofuran? So quickly, it's a colonesterase inhibitor, uh, which means in layman's terms, it shuts down the neural system, and birds, for some reason, we haven't quite been able to determine why, are particularly 
susceptible, and so they aren't able to uh, detoxify it um, before succumbing. And uh, since it's been on the market, it's thought to have been responsible for millions, uh, the demise of millions of birds, but we only have a fraction of the forensic evidence we would need to prove that. And there are some illegal uses to consider, and primarily it's favored as a poison in many, many areas because it, in its heyday, um, this is not so much the case now, but in its heyday it was very cheap, very easy to obtain. And I put odorless here uh, since working with uh, dogs. Um, odor is obviously very interesting to me. And there's some doubt about this. I have colleagues in Spain, actually, I just got an email this morning, it was kind of exciting. They're working with odor recognition in foxes. Um, so we'll know more about this soon, I hope. It's been used to intentionally poison wildlife in a retaliatory manner, so whether it's threats to lives or livelihood. Um, and uh, there are some more recreational retaliations uh, in terms of uh, whether uh, a predator is seen as encroaching on recreational hunting, which are, is really hard to swallow. Mm -hmm. And the thing that was most alarming to me that emerged from this book is a carbofuran, and it's not the only compound used for this, but it's actually used, uh, we call it pesticide uh, hunting and pesticide fishing. So people are using carbofuran to capture fish uh, and birds, and then they're eating it. Mm -hmm. Now, the main... <laughs> legal issues, there's a lot of discrepancies. So carbofuran is severely restricted in North America. I want to say banned, but I can't quite say that. And it's widely available in other areas, and this is a problem for with a lot of different compounds like this. Um, the main argument, it's kind of a blackmail argument, is that we need this compound because it's used on a lot of um, major food crops like corn and rice. Um, I think that's a lot of crap, but that's <laughs> the argument, and it's a very persuasive one. Now, I could spend 45 minutes just going into the legal battle that's raged between um, the US EPA and some powerful special interest groups. Uh, it's nuanced, uh, and <laughs> we don't have time, but needless to say, it's been going on for, for many years now. Um, and so, if you get anything from this talk, what I'd like you to get out of it is that even when you use this compound, legally, according to the label instructions, it is unsafe for wildlife. So if I can put that more specifically, this compound in any use is fundamentally unsafe, and that's why we keep going after it. This is, I apologize for the gruesomeness, this is how a lot of people came to know about carbofuran in Kenya, which I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about because it's an area I'm quite familiar with. Uh, in 2009, there was a CBS 60 Minutes piece that came out. Uh, I, I, if anyone's interested, I can tell you how the lion got in that condition. The concern at the moment in Kenya is that lions may be extinct there in the next five years. So that's, that's frightening. And that, we think, is in large part because of carbofuran. Now just, I would ask you to keep in mind uh, the condition of the lion because that will come back in a few minutes. Same thing in, uh, in the UK, I was speaking about retaliation in a sort of recreational uh, setting. Um, gamekeeper puts out uh, a rabbit with some carbofuran, and uh, carbofuran is, I should say, one, but not the only compound used in this way. And then you get one bird, often several clustered on the carcass. It works very, very quickly. Uh, on the island of Rab in Croatia in 2004, I think it was, 10 vultures perished of, uh, because of carbofuran. This was 
the first instance of wild samples being analyzed. Yeah, wildlife samples, pardon me, being analyzed um, at a forensics lab in Croatia. And everyone is fair game here. Uh, I just point out that beneficial insects. Um, we suspect, we don't know, but in Africa, there's, in Kenya, they're starting to look at the repercussions to beneficial insects, which I would argue would also be having some kind of repercussions to the security of global food crops. And children, uh, we've had a few reports, not very many, but in Africa, and also in India, little kids um, playing in the clay after an application has been made, put the clay in their mouth, and die. There's a lot of righteous indignation, and it's it's warranted, but it's not, it's not particularly helpful in this case. So the problem is, in a, again, going back to Kenya, but there is very little in the way of forensic evidence. So during the 60 Minutes piece, uh, which is called Poison, um, the reporters spoke a lot about furidin. The problem with that is everybody suspects furidin, but there's almost no forensic evidence. So you can't, you can't be talking about it that way. Uh, in, so this is a TLC plate at the top of thin layer chromatography. Underneath is a high pressure liquid chromatography, HPLC. A lot of instances uh, are only, a lot of analyses are only performed on a TLC plate. So it's considered old fashioned, it's actually a very good method, but it only tells you whether there's presence or absence of the compound you're interested in, and you have to know what you're looking for. And once you find it, you then have to go through another more specific uh, confirmation method. Uh, there are some problems with logistics, uh, environmental conditions, and there are also problems with corruption, <laughs> unfortunately, and there's problems uh, over-focusing on one single compound becoming fixated, and that's dangerous because there are a lot of other um, compounds that are being used, there are a lot of other factors in the environment, and when you fixate on one compound, you do yourself a big disservice, not just in terms of public relations, but because you genuinely might miss what's actually going on. So, very quickly, uh, I want to give you, I don't usually speak this fast, but <laughs> I just have a lot to say about this. So, I want to tell you about a colleague of mine and a, a good friend who is in uh, rice fields in, in Kenya, and his study, he's a bird lover, he's a lovely guy, he basically had to go into the rice field, and during migration, the poachers target these areas, and what they do is they set out baits, and then hundreds of birds die. So, first, uh, he watches a poacher uh, take out a small bottle of furidin, labeled furidin. The next thing he sees is this man mixing the, um, the, the furidin with his uh, bare hands. And then he sees the guy take these. These are um, snails. They're sort of muffin size. So he smears a bunch of the paste onto these snails. And shortly after, uh, he literally has dead birds uh, raining down on him, and I'm, I'm not trying to be overdramatic, this is actually what happened. So, uh, he was able to get one of these birds, he had a good rapport with poachers, and he sent a sample off, and results came back negative. He was absolutely shocked. So, a few things could have happened here, I mean, it's the, the immediate thing he thought of was corruption, but it could be that he collected um, the wrong sample. I think he took um, part of the gut 
and I'm not sure it would have made its way into the gut. Um, acting that quickly could also be, there were allegations um, of uh, counterfeit product being circulated in the area, so uh, not carbofuran per se, but in carbofuran container. So all sorts of things happening, and unfortunately for him, what he's now left with are three pieces of evidence, but not necessarily the ability to connect them. So obviously it goes without saying that we need a solid monitoring system in place uh, to, and you also need some baseline data to have something to, com to compare your present results with past results. And um, it, in this case, and in the case of a really toxic compound, you can often consider that um, presence of residues that can be taken as cause of death. And so in this case, um, we're trying to get people to look really more in the, the mouth area. And also, it's really good if you have a sense of the morphology of um, the, the creature whose parts you're going to be analyzing. Are they, you know, is it like a vulture? Are they going to be standing on a carcass? Are they going to be reaching their heads in? So if you know about that morphology, you can target some of these areas because even if ingestion hasn't occurred, contact with the compound of interest may have occurred. So um, the other thing, uh, uh, getting ahead of myself. Also consider that some of these compounds degrade. So carbofuran uh, degrades to carbosulfan, and that's another compound that's sometimes in use. Uh, so that just gives you an idea of what you're looking for. If you're, you know, you have to be aware of what else is, is being used. And then in terms of cultural uh, issues, um, I was, you remember the line, uh, the photo of the line that I showed. In, uh, some tribes in Kenya will remove the tail um, the feet, uh, sometimes a line will be skinned, the teeth will be removed for the tourist trade, so when, but, but not everywhere. So when you go into an area, and you know there's some cultural quirks in the United States too, just to have a sense of what kinds of samples uh, may be present or absent. Uh, and then I heard a lot this week, and I think it's really great advice that when you're in the field, you should check, check in with the lab and find out how they want their samples, what kind of samples they want. But in this case, the reality is also that labs need to be checking with people who are on the front lines to find out what is actually available. Because when I went, before I went to Kenya, I was surrounded by all this great uh, lab equipment. So I developed sample collection protocols. And when I got out there, I had to scrap everything because the reality is just, you know, it's just totally different. But Okay, so this is, it's nice when you get this. You don't always get this. Um, but there's, there's a lot of hope, there's a lot of good news. So some really exciting research that um, colleagues have done in Kenya. They were able to detect carbofuran on the beaks um, and on the talons uh, using HPLC, so that's great. And this applies to other compounds too. In Spain, uh, some colleagues just recently, uh, they got a vulture carcass that presented signs of poisoning and they could not get any residues. Then they um, took a closer look at the head, they removed the palate section, the cartilage, and lo and behold, they got um, a hit for, um, for another organophosphorus compound. So, and in my humble opinion, insects are really underutilized. Uh, at carcasses in Spain, they're treated uh, actually as a victim, a potential victim of poisoning. They're collected, they're analyzed for different uh, um, insecticides or poisons of interest. And as I spoke about this morning, there are all manner of um, evidence that can be collected at a scene to kind of bolster your case. So 
that's kind of breeze through that. I would say the, the outlook is very helpful. Um, and I also want to mention, because I can't remember if I mentioned it or not, um, I don't get, I don't profit financially from this book. All the um, royalties are going into a specially dedicated fund for research in Kenya. So I would be really grateful if anyone has ideas because we're trying to use it as a tool to share some of these um, analytical strategies and some of these stories because a lot of it is just people need a little moral support for some of the uh, awful stuff they've, they've had to witness. Um, so I've already said a lot of this, this stuff, but I would emphasize again, just think outside the box and be creative, um, you know, be a little bit daring. And the last thing that I wanted to say, uh, this is what we often have to look at in the field. Um, and we know that the last moments of uh, creatures have not been particularly pleasant. You might be in a lab and never see this, but you might still have this awareness. Um, and I hope, so I hope you've had a great week here in this really scenic environment. And I want to uh, mention something that was said to me when I was working at a wildlife rehab clinic. Sometimes we had a really bad day and we, we lost a lot of birds. Um, but, <laughs> so, <laughs> that was perfect timing. Um, but so, so, we were always told, uh, remember all the creatures that have a chance to be wild because of your care. So I, I want to say the same thing to you, whether you're you know, on the front lines or you're toiling away in a lab, uh, you know, just remember that what you do means that, that wildlife has a chance to be wild, and I don't really think there's a price you can put on that. So, thanks. I hope you enjoyed this presentation by Nagao Richards on Carbofuran. I'm Laurel Nimi, and this has been The Wildlife, a program that probes the mysteries of the animal world through interviews with scientists and other wildlife investigators. Thanks for listening. <laughs>